This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. We're so glad you're here today for the Bible Line, and if you are a first-time listener, we welcome you. For the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions that they have as they've been studying God's Word. Maybe there's an issue as it relates to your personal life or ministry or an application from a text or just its basic meaning to the original audience. If we can be of help, again, the local number the toll-free number is 877, the call letters, WAGP 980, or again, locally, it's 843. The 843 South Carolina Exchange is 525-1859. Or you can email us directly here into the studio. And we get a lot of questions that way. The email address is tbl, that stands for the Bible line, tbl at wagp.net. If you choose to call, and we do give preference to live callers, you can go on the air or you can simply dictate your question to Deb, who's in the adjacent studio, and they'll, she'll put it up here on the screen in front of us. So let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning, Rick. Very good, Pastor. We do have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Um, hi, Pastor Bogey. Thank you for your ministry. Uh, we learned so much on Search the Scriptures. But my question today was on a passage in Mark. Me and my husband have been reading Mark, and... We came across 938, I believe it was. I don't have it in front of me, sorry. But um, it's about someone driving out demons in Jesus' name, and the apostles told them to stop. um, Yes. Because he wasn't one of them. And Jesus' reply um, that kind of confused us because he told them not to stop the person. Um, And it just reminded us of the passage in Matthew, Matthew 722, I believe where it says, you know, not everyone who drives out demons and prophesies in his name um, or perform miracles is someone of God, obviously. So could you clarify those two passages for Yeah, us? no, those are great questions. Thanks so much for calling. So let me uh, take the Mark text. Uh, not everyone listening, of course, has a Bible in front of them. Uh, John said to him, Teacher, John, one of the apostles, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able to able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. So context is everything. Um, in the Matthew 7 account, Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount. And, of course, the key verse to the Sermon on the Mount is that your righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So they had an external righteousness, but without inwardly being born again. So that's important to remember as you think through the Sermon on the Mount, because Jesus, throughout that sermon, has said, well, you've heard it is written, 
and what's written is true. But I say to you, because you see the Pharisees, of course, could claim an external righteousness. Well, we don't commit adultery. But Jesus said, if you lusted a woman to look at her in your heart, you've committed adultery. We don't, we don't murder anyone. Jesus said to be angry with your brother is to be like a murderer. And so at the end of the sermon, he kind of goes for the jugular. Um, he speaks of people who outwardly confess Jesus, but inwardly have no genuine reality. So he begins that pericope by saying, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. They're not converted, in other words. And then he goes on to say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. In other words, a changed life is evidence of conversion. But wait a minute. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and your name perform many miracles? And of course, Jesus does not deny that because there are people who cast out demons in the name of Christ. The seven sons of Sceva, who are recorded in the book of Acts, uh, they saw the power of Jesus' name and they attempted one day to use it. And of course, uh, they left uh, stripped and naked by the demons who came over them. Uh, There are people who perform miracles in his name. When you think about the 12 that were sent out, that would include Judas, and they all came back talking about the miracles that God had done through them. And God didn't exclude Judas from that possibility. So um, you read a a text like this, and you'd say, man, this is like a spirit-filled ministry. The people preached in Jesus' name. They cast out demons in his name. They did miracles in his name. And then he'll say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There's a lifestyle that denies genuine conversion. When we come to the Mark text, it's not contradictory at all because, again, this is early in the ministry of Christ. And John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. Well, who was he following? Well, remember, this is early, and there's a transitional time. And so you have, for instance, the disciples of John who uh, have a preparatory ministry in reference to the coming of the Messiah. And for a long time, early in the ministry of Christ, the disciples of John were following John. And then some of the disciples of John, after they had left even uh, Jerusalem proper in the wilderness area where John would preach, uh, they didn't know that Jesus had come and fulfilled uh, all that was spoken of him by the prophets. Even years later in Ephesus, when Ephesus 19, I mean, Acts 19, Paul comes to Ephesus and he asks kind of a a uh, diagnostic question of sorts to see if these people had been converted. And, oh, we, we, we don't know anything about the Holy Spirit and being baptized in Jesus' name. Uh, these were people who were disciples of John. Were they followers? Yes. Could some of the disciples of John even cast out demons? Yes, casting out demons was something that even Old Testament saints could do, certain ones that God had raised up. And so I think that's really the context here that he's saying, look, they they may not be following you in the same way that you're following me, and it's purely informational. This is a transitional time. And so when you read the Gospels, even when you read the book of Acts, there's some transitional times that take place, and those have to be interpreted. It'd be like uh, in Ephesians 1, Paul says, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. 
Uh, Paul's very clear. You hear the gospel, you believe the gospel, you're immediately indwelt and sealed by the Spirit of God. When he writes the church at Rome, he says in Romans 8, 9, not to have the Holy Spirit is not to be one of his. In other words, if you're truly, genuinely converted, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Well, wait a minute. What about early on in Acts chapter 8, where you have the um, Samaritans who had believed on the Lord Jesus, but they had not yet received the Holy Spirit? That seems contradictory to what Paul will record. It's a transitional time. And so God, for instance, in Acts 8, did not allow the Samaritans at the moment of faith to receive the Holy Spirit. While he had done that at Pentecost, while he had done it in Acts 10 with the Gentiles, the moment they believe on the Lord Jesus, Peter said they received the Spirit of God just like we did. Um, But that wasn't true in Acts 8. Why? Because God knew that potentially there could be a divided church. The Samaritan people were despised people. They're half Jewish, they're half Gentile. So God allowed uh, allowed for them after they had believed to receive the Spirit. When the apostles came down and laid hands on them, and then they received the Spirit, what was happening? God was basically saying by his apostles, these are genuine believers who are to be received in the same way as the Jews. And God gave that affirmation. And so instead of potentially having two churches, a divided church, there was a unified church. And so again, this is a transition time. Probably these are disciples of John because there, there are some other times in the Gospels where you have the disciples of John who are not following in the same way, because, again, they, they just don't have the full message yet. And so Jesus says, for he who is not against us is for us. And they weren't against Christ. Uh, the disciples of John were indeed preaching that um, Messiah is coming and we need to be ready. And they helped make people ready for the coming of the Messiah. So that's how I would take that text. That's a great question. I appreciate it so much. Go ahead, Rick, give the numbers again for someone who wants to call live. All right, 843-525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. And something must have been going on in one of the Bible studies this past weekend because we had two callers from the same Bible class who had the same question. Uh, basically goes as follows. We know John the Baptist baptized the way we do with full immersion, but how did the Jews baptize prior to John's ministry? Well, the same way. The the Greek word baptizo, uh, I know it's kind of a religious term in our day, but if you lived in the first century, it was actually had many secular connotations. For instance, if I dyed cloth for a living, I'm wearing a a white shirt. If I wanted to turn it red, I would baptize it. The word meant to submerge, to immerse. I would baptize it in red dye. And so the word baptizo just means to submerge or to immerse. And that's why it's really an oxymoron to say that a little infant who has little water sprinkled over them is being baptized. There's a word in the New Testament for sprinkling, ratizo, It's never used in reference to the ordinance of New Testament baptism that Christ commanded. Sprinkling is not really true baptism. You were just sprinkled. In fact, typically you would not want to baptize an infant. I had actually a a man in my discovery class probably almost 30 years ago when I was first uh, the pastor at Community Bible Church. We didn't even have a building And I said, you know, for the most part, and I said for the most part, because I know there's some exceptions. For instance, 
uh, if you've ever seen the Orthodox people in the Slavic countries baptize an infant. They take the infant and they super fast uh, baptize him under the water, and they do it. In the name of the Father, they pull the child up. In the name of the Son, pull the child up. In the name of the Holy Spirit. And you go online, you can watch it. It's kind of interesting to watch, but uh, it's kind of like when you train, you know, these people, I don't know why they're so big into teaching their kids to swim at, you know, 10 months old or whatever. But, you know, there are these swimming classes and it's kind of a racket. And so what they do sometimes is they take the child and they just plunge him under the water and bring it right up. And the child just kind of holds his breath uh, just by a reflex. And that's really what happens here. But this one brother from Mexico told me that actually they did that and actually a baby drowned. Uh, The baby ingested water and it ended up killing the baby. Uh, Not immediately, but progressively. And they were unable to help the child, which was kind of a sad story. But my point is, is the word means to immerse. And so Jesus, when he gives a series of woes, uh, his woe sermons, he gives some woes at different times in his ministry to the scribes and the Pharisees. And the scribes and the Pharisees were uh, a group of people who, um, you know, again, had this external righteousness, not always, not 100% of the time, but very often they did. And so in Matthew 23, where, is, where, where this sermon takes place in the final week of his life, he talks about these Jewish men who will do anything to make a proselyte. A proselyte is a Gentile who has embraced uh, Judaism. And so Jesus, you know, kind of rebukes them. You'll go to all these ends to make a proselyte and to make them a Jew, but you don't really even follow the things that a Jew is to follow. Well, how did a person become a proselyte? There were two things that were involved. They were ceremonially baptized in what's called a mikvah. A mikvah is a seven-stepped stone basin that you walk down into. It has to have moving water. And so very often they would um, either have a channel of water coming from a well uh, where you had, or from an aqueduct where it would come in and it would be channeled through the mikvah. And they would go down and they would immerse. And it was a symbol. In fact, to this day, Orthodox Jews still going to mikvahs before certain high Jewish holidays as a ceremonial cleansing, and they were baptized. They are immersed. And so a proselyte would be immersed, and then um, he would be circumcised if he was a male. Um, And so, again, there's different kinds of baptisms. There's proselyte baptism in the Bible. There is John's baptism in the Bible. Someone asked me recently, they said, well, what if someone got John's baptism, you know, get ready for the Messiah, and John the Baptist baptized them, and then later they heard the gospel, would they have been baptized again? And I said, yes, and we have a very great example of that. I alluded to it a few moments ago from Acts 19. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. Every time you see the word disciple in the Bible, it's not necessarily of a converted person. In John 6, there are some people who are called disciples. The Greek word mathetes just means a learner. And so if you were a learner of Plato, then you were a disciple of Plato. And there were some learners who were in this place called Ephesus. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? 
that's kind of a diagnostic question. And they said, no, we've not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. What did that tell the Apostle Paul? It told him that these men who had come to Israel, probably maybe to observe one of the three required uh, feasts that God had dictated for a pious Jew to come to, and maybe one of one of them came on one occasion, and uh, they heard John's ministry, and they believed John's ministry, the Messiah is coming, and that's all they heard. And so, in the providence and the protection of God, because their hearts were open, God will eventually get the gospel to them. And Paul discovers that they had not heard the full message. If they had heard the full message, they would have had the baptism of the Spirit. They would have been indwelt by them. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. All we had was the baptism of repentance, in other words. And Paul said, well, John baptized you with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, namely, Jesus and Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So now they had believer's baptism. By the way, this is the only example in all the New Testament of a rebaptism. And the reason they are baptized again is because their first baptism was John's baptism. It was not believer's baptism. But by application and extension, you could say to someone, hey, I was baptized when I was 12 years old, but I was not a believer in the Lord Jesus. Or someone says to me, I was baptized when I was 15, and I'm not sure if I was a believer. Maybe I was. I'm not sure I really understood the gospel. And I would say to a person whose baptism is on the wrong side of the converge, their conversion, you should have believer's baptism. I was, quote-unquote, baptized, but not really when I was six days old because I was sprinkled. But I came to faith at the age of 18, so I had believer's baptism. So Jewish baptism, proselyte baptism, again, the word means to submerge, to immerse. And to this day, Jewish Orthodox Jews, practicing Jews, still get in a mikvah, and they are ceremonially immersed as a symbol of cleansing in preparation for some Jewish feast or holiday. All right, 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And a caller just uh, dictated their question. They'd like you to please explain if in Matthew 11, verses 2 and 3, when John was imprisoned, was he doubting when he sent word by his disciples to ask Christ, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? Well, it's a good question. It's a great question. And we read here, when Jesus had finished giving instructions to the 12, he departed from there to teach and preach. And now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by the disciples and he said, are you the expected one? Uh, the expected one is one of the titles, literally the coming one. And so Moses spoke of the coming one in Deuteronomy 18, that would be like him, he would be a prophet, but he'd be far greater than him. And so Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So here's John the Baptist. He's a great man. I mean, what a great man of God, so great that Jesus could say in the same chapter down in verse 11, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So John was not like a 
a reed, Jesus said, swayed by public uh, opinion. He was a man who um, was of great character, but his question really comes from a misunderstanding about the entirety of Messiah's ministry, because there are two pictures of the ministry of the Messiah that are given in the Word of God. One is that he would come as a suffering servant. The other is that he would come as a ruling, reigning, sovereign Lord. And by the way, had the Jews embraced Jesus truly as the Messiah, uh, if they as a nation had embraced him as the Messiah, uh, they would have found Christ guilty of insurrection and his second coming would have soon happened. But they didn't embrace him as the Messiah. And God predicted that they would not that it would be, in in essence, a remnant. It was really a remnant of Jews. Some put it as high as 30,000, but still, population-wise, that's a remnant of Jews when compared to the entire nation that existed in the first century. And so what we find in Scripture are two mountain peaks of prophecy, and what some of them did not see is that there was a valley between those two mountain peaks. If you're up on a hill and you look across, sometimes you can see two mountaintops, but what you cannot see is the valley between those two mountaintops. And sometimes in the Old Testament, in a single verse, both comings of the Messiah are predicted. And so, for instance, if you remember in that time when Jesus went to the Mount of Precipice, if you go with me to Israel, and our trip is full for this next one, but God willing, we'll have another one in May of 2021, 18 months from our September trip. Uh, It will be late in May after school gets out. But if you remember, um, when you go to the Mount of Precipice, there's only one place in Nazareth where it could have happened. So there are different spots. Sometimes you say, well, uh, this is a Class A spot. It happened right here. You are on the spot where this biblical event happened. Sometimes there's what I call a Class B spot. Uh, It happened somewhere around here. We're in the general facility. We don't know if it happened 20 yards over there or 15 yards over here, but we're right in the general facility, general uh, vicinity. And then there is what I call a Class C spot where, who knows, um, this is a Class A spot. And if you remember when Jesus um, was in the the synagogue there, he read... um, from the prophet Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed, anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he stops in the middle of a verse. Sometimes we call it as theologues a 2,000-year-old comma. In Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, where he's quoting, he stops right in the middle of verse 2, and the day of vengeance of our God. That's the second coming. And so if you have been with us in our study of the Revelation or of Daniel, we've seen there's a lot of verses where in a single verse you have both the first and second coming. So here's John the Baptist. He's in prison. What's he doing in prison? Messiah is supposed to rule and reign with a rod of iron. Why is it that it appears these Gentiles are ruling over the nation of Israel? We thought Messiah was going to come and and make Israel great and be a light to the Gentiles, and it seems like I'm being oppressed even as the forerunner of Christ. And so the Lord Jesus, in this moment of doubt that John has, all he does is remind him of the Scripture. Go tell John this, 
and what he tells John, what he tells these disciples to tell John, are things exactly that the Messiah will do. Here, the blind will receive sight. Um, lame limbs will be made whole. The dead are raised up. The poor will have the gospel preached to them. And that's all John needs. And John embraces it. And he is a great, 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 great man. And, you know, we have people today who are not like John the Baptist. They have no steel in their spine. They're unwilling to tell people the truth. They are like a reed that is blown in the wind. And so when the church for 2,000 years is held to a particular position, and no one wants to hold to that position today because it's unpopular, they put their finger into the wind and they go in the direction of the wind. They're swayed like a reed and they don't tell people the truth and they bend the truth and they acquiesce to the culture rather than to what God says. John was not that kind of man. And of course, in the end, it cost him his own life. All right. Very good. 843-525-1859. We've had a number of And let me just say parenthetically on John, remember this statement that Jesus made, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. How can the one who is least in the kingdom be greater than John? Because John died before Pentecost. And that's why even the youngest, smallest believer, so to speak, in the kingdom of God was greater than John because he experienced a greater level of the new covenant that John never knew. Even though John was filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb, he was never permanently indwelt by the Spirit. And that, by the way, is probably part of the reason why John had this moment of doubt. Uh, Unlike a new covenant believer who now has the Holy Spirit living in him, the Spirit bears witness with his spirit that he's become a child of God. John didn't know that on the same level. And um, so, anyway, good Good, good question. Let's go to the next one. They've been piling up here. Yes, we've had a number of calls today, and uh, including one who would like you to please explain Numbers 1418. If we're experiencing many trials and illnesses, is it because of our parents' sins and Christ is visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations? The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations. Generational sin is really the essence of your question. So let me bring you to a couple central passages that uh, deal with this subject. Um, In Exodus chapter 20, where the Decalogue is given, and it's given in two principal places, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, where we have the Deca is the Hebrew Greek word for 10, so the Decalogus is the 10 words, the 10 commandments, so to speak, that God gave. And God said in Deuteronomy 20 and verse 5, you shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children of the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, of those who hate me. And so what God is referring to here are the disciples uh, of, of a parent. If a parent hates the living God, it's very possible that the child will hate the living God. Why? For the simple reason that 
uh, the child has been shaped by his parent. Does that mean he doesn't stand a chance? No, because where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. But we are instructed as parents to bring our children up on the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And that's part of what God has called us to do. But remember, when God speaks of children uh, committing the identical sins of their parents, it's not automatic. It's not, well, I sinned in this area and my children are automatically going to sin in this area. No. Uh, let, me, let me give you a couple verses that I think shed some light on this. One is in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20. It says, the person whose sins will die, the son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. In other words, each man stands on his own. So when God speaks of generational sin, I think what's very revealing in Exodus 20, in verse 5, of those who hate me, it's a qualified hate. He is speaking that each generation that continues in the same spirit and the same hatred will uh, experience the same kind of judgment. Uh, the other passage that comes to mind is in Deuteronomy 20, 24, Deuteronomos. Uh, Deutero means second, nomos means law. So our first five books of the Bible do not have um, English, I mean Hebrew titles. The, the, the titles in my Hebrew Bible for the first five books are different from the titles in my English Bible. And so this is the second giving of the law. And, of course, the titles are not inspired. Uh, what is inspired is the text of Scripture. The titles are no more inspired than the chapter and verse divisions are. But we um, adopt the first five books of the Bible, the titles from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Bible. In either case, here in Deuteronomy chapter 24, when the second giving of the law, this is right at the end of Moses' life, he gathers all those who have come uh, through the 40 years. Remember, every 20 and up perished in the wilderness with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, and he's kind of recounting what what God had said earlier to the people. So this recounting is very important. And in Deuteronomy 24 and verse 16, fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin, period. So again, Deuteronomy matches what Ezekiel says, and it matches what the Ten Commandments say. It matches what Numbers said. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. So those are five books written by Moses. We just quoted from Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, not to mention the prophet Ezekiel, and they all concur in Moses' statement in the Decalogue, for those who hate me is the qualifying statement, but it is certainly explained in his words in Deuteronomy 24 and certainly later by the prophet Ezekiel. Very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, a reminder, if you uh, missed part of the program today, you can always listen to the archives at wagp.net or uh, searchthescriptures.org and just click on the archives button and then click on the Bible line. Leslie Ann from Hilton Head Island says, will the third temple be built south of the Temple Mount? I heard there is excavation and archaeology going on there that might point to that really being the place of Solomon's temple, of which no stone should be left unturned. 
Uh, it's a good question, and it's a popular issue that has come up. There was a man who, I think it was 1999, his name is Ernest Martin. He was a member of the Worldwide Church of God. Uh, Herbert Armstrong uh, started this cult that denied the deity of Christ, the doctrine of the Trinity, and he was a member of this cult, and they used to put out a magazine in airports called Plain Truth, and I would often have to counter that because people would come even through the 90s when it was still being published, and they say, I read this in Plain Truth, and I said, well, right off, you're reading a magazine that is put out by a cult that denies Jesus Christ's deity. What's kind of interesting is Garner Ted Armstrong, um, one, one of the sons of the original cult finder, ended up coming to faith in Christ, and he ended up denying what his, old, his dad said. But lay that aside, um, Martin, he had a doctorate, I'm not sure from where. He wrote this uh, publication in Plain Truth and ultimately a whole book on it where he said that uh, the Temple Mount was actually the fortress of Antonia, or the Antonio Fortress, and it was a place where the Romans uh, had all their soldiers, and that that was not the place where the Temple was built. That the Temple was built in what's called the original city of David. If you go to... Uh, Jerusalem today, and I always point this out when I take groups of people. The original Jebusite city has been uncovered. Uh, They actually started to find it in the 1980s, and now it's just incredible what they have uncovered that was, you know, buried over years of silt and dirt and everything else um, as things go. And that place was not the place where the temple was. It's impossible for the temple to have been there. But there's a guy, um, Robert Canuck, or some pronounce it Canucky. Um, in either case, he wrote a book basically advocating that the place of the original temple is not up there in the Temple Mount, but in the original city of David. It's a 13-acre little plot that's uh, south um, you know, a few hundred yards from the platform that we call today the the Temple Mount. Uh, he's wrong. He, he's uh, one of these guys who likes to write books that, I don't know, just sell books. I, I You know, I maybe he's a sincere guy, and he has the gospel, but he got the idea from a cult finder. Uh, he also said he found the original anchor of the Apostle Paul's ship that, you know, wrecked there uh, in Malta, he claimed that he had found the um, Noah's Ark, and he writes these books, and gullible Christians buy tens of thousands of copies and, you know, make somebody rich along the way. Uh, but it's, it's just bad theology. It really is. And so the Jewish people for thousands of years know exactly where the temple was located. And it was, meant, it was located up on that f- flat piece of 35 acres that we call today the Temple Mount. The the Bible tells us that Abraham uh, brought Isaac to the mountains of Moriah, and he offered him before the Lord. Of course, God intervened. And later on, it's on that same area, what today we call the Temple Mount, that Solomon built the first temple. 
And then later on, and it's also the place, by the way, where David, Second Chronicles tells us, had uh, purchased from Aruna the Jebusite a piece of property in which to stop the plague that was coming upon the people of Israel. And it was there that Solomon built the first temple, and it was there that Zerubbabel built the second temple, and it was there that Herod, through an incredible architectural program, had built all these series of arches and then filled them in with dirt and made the Temple Mount flat. And so even to this day, it's a flat piece of property. There's modern-day concrete at the top, but the flatness of the Temple Mount comes from the work of the great architect, Herod the Great. It was a plan that he designed that continued to go on long after his death and actually was just completed a few years before the destruction of the Temple in 70 AD. If you go to the Temple Mount there with me, uh, in Jerusalem, we'll actually see some of the original stones that were thrown over the top. And so Bob Kunuk or Konicki, um says, well, you know, not one stone will be left upon another. And look at these walls. And there are certainly, there is the Western or what originally people referred to 40 years ago, the Wailing Wall. And there's Herodian stones in it. And Jewish people go there every day because it's the closest place they can get to where the original temple was, to the Holy of Holies, where God would literally actually appear in all of his glory as the Shekinah would come upon the temple. They say, look, the wall's there. That's, that's not the temple. That, those are the retaining walls. Uh, not to mention, just a few years ago, uh, we found amongst some of those rubbles one great piece of rock, and on it was inscribed the place of the trumpeter. The place of the trumpeter is the place where a Jewish man would stand and he would blow the ram's horn and he would call the people to the temple or he would announce that the Sabbath had begun. Where is that located? Right off of the Temple Mount. So not to mention when you look at the the, the actual size of the temple. And, and so what uh, Ernest Martin did and more recently Kanuk uh, or Kanuke as some like to pronounce it, um, what he has done has really been a great disservice because, you see, this is what the Arab people, the Muslims have been saying. They're saying the Jews never had any part on the Temple Mount. In fact, if you go to old literature that was produced in the 1920s, you discover that even in literature written by the Muslims, they acknowledge that the Jewish temple was up here on top of the Temple Mount. But in more recent days, they deny that. They say it never happened here. And they really like these Christians who so blindly and naively ascribe to the thought that, you know, it's down here on the southern part off of the Temple Mount in the original city of David. Originally, the city of David was a, you know, a a plot of land that as they moved upward, the city got bigger and bigger, and Solomon ultimately expanded the whole city to uh, what we see pretty much today among the walls that go around the city of Jerusalem. there It's kind of a city within the larger city of Jerusalem. But uh, he's just wrong, and he's done actually a great disservice to the Orthodox Jewish people because the Muslims are saying, look, you have even these evangelical Christians in America. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to help God out. You know, oh, look, we can build the temple now. It's not even up there. We don't have to debate over the dome of the, d- dome of the rock. We, we, we can build it right down here. 
God doesn't need our help, and God's going to solve the problem, and it will be solved by the time of the Great Tribulation because it will be during that seven-year period right in the middle that the Antichrist will defile a rebuilt temple. All right, we have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Well, good morning, gentlemen and fellow ministers. Yes, my question is this. Uh, do do um, Christians today, do we have a, a free will? Because I always thought that Adam was the only one who had a free will because he was not born with sin. But we, as believers, were born with sin. So our will is enslaved to our sinful inclinations. And also, I, you know, the Bible says that God gives us two options, heaven or hell. So if I had a free will, I said, God, well, well, don't give me the free will to choose, see, to resist, instead of being cast into like a fire forever, or be had the free will to choose. Well, God, give me the, give me the free will to choose to live in a planet, you know, alone, and with we'll, we'll all the beautiful things you want to give to the believers, and you know, and I don't want to, you know, be under the illusion of nobody. That's my free will. So, what is the? What do you think about that? It's a great question, and it's a question that basically divides Christians into Calvinism and Arminianism in in a camp even in between. The Calvinist says no man has no free will in its truest sense because he's dead in his trespasses and sins. Uh, Paul in Romans 3 says there's none who seeks God, no, not one. Uh, One of the central passages for the Calvinistic point of view, there are three central passages, Romans 9, Ephesians 1, and John 6. And in the John 6 passage, Jesus reminds us, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. The Arminian point of view, after Jacobus Arminius, argues that man is totally free, that he has the ability in and of himself to be able to respond to God. Now, certainly what makes us being made in the image of God is that we are free moral agents. God didn't make Adam in such a way where Adam says, yes, God, I will obey you. What is your next command? He was not a robot. He was a free moral agent. Well, to have free will, you had to have a choice. And so God said in Genesis 2, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. From the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. And of course, he chose willfully to disobey God. And just as God said, he died that day. I will often ask people, hey, did Adam die the day he ate the fruit? And they'll often say, well, no. Well, can God lie? Well, no. Well, God said the day. And it's emphatic in the Hebrew, meaning the very day. He eats, he'll die, and you discover there's three kinds of death in the Bible. He did die that day spiritually. He died on the inside. And so God comes into the garden. He says, where are you, Adam? That's not the voice of a detective. That's the voice of a brokenhearted God. God never asks questions to learn because he's omniscient, but he does ask questions to reveal, and he's revealing to Adam in all of his shame that there's a problem. He began to die that day physically, and so now we're born dying. We're getting older and older, and we're marching towards the grave. And if the problem of spiritual and physical death, uh, if the problem of spiritual death is not settled before you die physically, there is the third death, the second death. It's called eternal death, where a person is forever separated from God. So in Adam, Romans 5, 12 says, we've all sinned. 
So there is a sense in which the Calvinist is correct. There is none righteous, not one. There is none who seeks God. Paul plainly said it, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Next time you go to the funeral home and you stand over the coffin of a friend or a loved one, don't say, well, let me read something to you here today that you'll find great comfort from. Hey, your tie is a little crooked. Could you just adjust it a little bit? The man's dead. He has the capacity to do nothing. That's how dead we are in our sins. So the question then becomes, does God aid our free will? And I would say, yes, he does. It's called what some reformers called prevenient grace or pre-salvation grace. But the difference between the Calvinist and the Arminian is, one, the Arminian says he doesn't even need prevenient grace. And there are degrees of Arminians, just like there is degrees of Calvinists. There are some Calvinists who are five-point Calvinists. Uh, There are some who are four-point Calvinists, some who are three-point Calvinists. So there's degrees of Calvinism. But there's a a, a position, I would call myself a Calvinian. Uh, I'm not a Calvinist, nor am I Arminian. But I do think that God does work in a person's heart. But unlike the Calvinist who says that God will only work in the heart of the elect, I believe he works in everyone's heart. When it says, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The world there means the world. It means everybody. When the Bible says, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, the Calvinist says, Jesus didn't die for all. He died just for the elect. Otherwise, his blood was wasted on the non-elect who would not believe. No, actually, the blood of Christ and his death for them also provides a basis for their condemnation. No one will be able to say, well, I didn't even have a provision made for me. Jesus never even died for me. No, every mouth will be stopped. The perfect justice of God will be seen. But neither can anyone say, well, you know, I became a Christian kind of on my own. I knew there were some problems in my life, so I started reading some books on Christian apologetics and this and that. And I said one day, God, if you're there, you know, uh, I'm open to you. And No, listen, any um, fire that you had in your spirit to want to seek after God was initiated by God. So you'll be able to take no credit for anything when you get to heaven. It's all Jesus from beginning or end. But because he works in every heart, you truly have a free will. You have the ability to say yes or no to Christ. People say, no, the grace of, of God is irresistible. You cannot resist um, the work of the Holy Spirit. And when he works in your heart, um, you know, that's it. Well, that's not true, according to Stephen. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing at their teeth. uh, Stephen is um, preaching this great sermon about Jesus, and he had just said, you men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just like your father said. You can resist that work of the Spirit. When he convicts you of sin, righteousness, and judgment, you can resist him. You can freely say, I'm not interested today. Well, listen, God will not always strive with you, and that's why there is an urgency to respond to Jesus because you don't know, one, that you'll be alive tomorrow, two, that Jesus couldn't come back this afternoon, or three, that the Spirit who's at work in your heart today might not stop tomorrow. You're not in charge. God is in charge. Yes, he gives you a free will, but if you say no to God long enough, 
there may come a time when God will say, I'll give you your wish, and he'll say no to you. So I hope that helps. Good question. Let's go on to the next. All right. We've got a fairly lengthy question emailed from us uh, by an anonymous listener in Atlanta. Uh, They write, I don't know if you've been following some of the comments Andy Stanley has said, but I would love your response. He said, as directly quoted from the manuscript of his sermon, the foundation of our faith is not the scripture. The foundation of our faith is not the infallibility of the Bible. The foundation of our faith is something that happened in history, and the issue is always, who is Jesus? That's always the issue. The scripture is simply a collection of ancient documents that tells us that story. Here's why I believe this. Adam and Eve being created actually happened, not because the Bible says so, but because of the Gospels. Jesus talks about Adam and Eve, and it appears to me that he believed that they were actual historical figures. And if he believed they were historical, I believe they were historical, because anybody that can predict their own death and resurrection and pull it off, I just believe anything they say. Then, more recently, when preaching on Acts 15, Stanley said, first century church leaders unhitched the church from the worldview value system and regulations of the Jewish scriptures. Peter, James, Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures, and my friends, we must as well. In his sermon, he said he was concerned that many Christians are turning away from the faith because of certain passages in the Old Testament. He argues the early church moved past the Old Testament for the sake of newly converted Gentile believers and that the resurrection of Jesus was their focus. He said in that sermon, and I quote, the Bible did not create Christianity. The resurrection of Jesus Christ created and launched Christianity. And those are some really terrible, terrible statements that Andy Stanley made. It just makes my skin crawl. Uh, uh, Franklin Graham, uh, the last month of the Decision Magazine, uh, the title is something like, Is the Old Testament Reliable? And I, I almost think that he wrote that entire a publication last month in Decision Magazine to counter some of this sheer nonsense that guys like Andy Stanley is making. It is true that, you know, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ is the basis of our salvation. No one would would argue against that, but it's misleading to say that the foundation of our faith is not the Scripture. Listen, the only thing that we know about the Lord Jesus Christ is through Scripture, what God has written down. The message of salvation comes to us from the Bible. And apart from that, we would have no understanding of salvation. And that's why the Apostle Paul, and I turned to Ephesians 2 and verse 20 when Rick began to read this, and he says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. And so the Apostle Paul can speak of the Apostles' message as being the foundation of the church. Without their testimony that has been recorded and inscripturated, there is no salvation that we would know or understand about. And not to mention, you know, well, he says the, you know, the, the early church basically jettisoned the Old Testament scripture. That's not true. Listen, for nearly a decade, all they had to teach and to prove that Jesus was the Messiah was the Old Testament. The first book of the New Testament had not yet been written. The first gospel to be written is Matthew. And it's about 10 years after Christ's ascension into heaven. But listen, um, not even quite 10 years. Um, but 
listen, they had the Old Testament, and that's what they reasoned from time and time and time and time again. It is true that there are aspects of the Old Testament that are ceremonial in nature, but there's a lot of things in the Old Testament that are not ceremonial in nature. Nowhere in the New Testament do you learn that you shouldn't marry your cousin. I hope no one listening to me today is going to marry their first cousin because God says don't do that. Nowhere in the Old Test, nowhere in the New Testament is there a prohibition against bestiality. But that's a wicked, heinous, vicious, perverted crime. But God only has to say it once for it to be true, and that's part of God's eternal law. So Stanley says here in this quotation that um, Adam and Eve is not because the Bible says so, but because Jesus said so. Well, certainly that Jesus affirmed the existence of Adam and Eve makes it true, but Jesus does not somehow separate. There's no bifurcation between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between what the Old Testament Scripture says and what Jesus said. And so if you remember on that occasion, it's recorded in uh, Mark 10 and Matthew 19, when the Pharisees come and they ask Jesus about divorce, what does he say? What does the scripture say? What is he doing? He's pointing them back to the authority of the scriptures. In Luke chapter 10, where there's a scribe who comes to Jesus and he asks them the question, you know, what is the greatest, you know, what must we do to, I don't want to misquote it. Let me just turn over there for a second. Um, in Luke chapter 10, uh, and it, of course, leads to the great parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan that will follow. But what sets it up is a lawyer. And, of course, the term lawyer or scribe is describing the same uh, office. A lawyer stood up. And they're not lawyers like today who, you know, take you to court and get you out of some traffic violation or, you know, stand up for your property rights. A lawyer or a scribe in Christ's day was a person who uh, was a copier of Scripture and a defender of Scripture. So this lawyer stood up and he said, Teacher, what shall I do? And he stands up to test him, the Bible says. He's testing him. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus comes back with two questions. What is written in the law? He, how does it read to you? So he, he takes him back to the law, to the Old Testament, because why? The law is authoritative, and that's what Stanley basically is not affirming. And so Adam and Eve existed because the Bible tells us so. It tells us that in Genesis, and it tells us that through the words of Christ. In Genesis 1.1 is no less inspired than Matthew 1.1. It's all the Word of God. Certainly there are dimensions that need to be understood and interpreted contextually, but it's all God's Word, and that's what we are to believe and to embrace. And so what he said is just flat out wrong. And I have a feeling it's going somewhere in the days ahead, but only time will tell.